1: welcome back to pod save the world this is tommy vitor thank you all for tuning in to listen to the show it has been a wild week in foreign policy news it was actually very hard to decide what should go in the show today because there has been so much news but i think any way you look at it, the biggest story has been the roiling events in Venezuela. So the show starts with a phone call from Anthony Fiola, who is the Washington Post's South American and Caribbean bureau chief. We talked about what's going on in Venezuela, how the ongoing coup like efforts are going, how the U.S. intervention in the situation is being received by the Venezuelan people, and what we think might come next. Then, Ben Rhodes comes and joins in studio, and we talked through how the Trump administration has been handling Venezuela. You might be surprised to learn that we're torn. We don't want to reflexively oppose things that the Trump administration does. Both of us would love to see Maduro get the hell out of there. But it's complicated. And, uh, you know, the United States doesn't have the greatest history of interfering in political events in Latin America. So we talked through all of that. And then we talked about the Senate's Worldwide Threat Assessment Hearings. That's where they bring in all the heads of the intel community to talk through all the great challenges we face across the planet, basically. What was stark was the fact that on all these key issues, climate change, Iran, North Korea, the intel professionals have a very different perspective on what the situation is than Donald Trump himself. And how do we reconcile that difference? The fact that their words just don't match up with reality what's, what's coming out of the Oval Office. Then we talked about huge news of a possible peace deal in Afghanistan. We talk about a scary uptick in Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then we talk about the on-again, off-again security clearance for Jared Kushner and a fun story in the New York Times about a bumbling private spy. It's a great, great show. I really think you'll enjoy it. If you did, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Maybe give us a, a review in the iTunes store because it really does help a lot with people finding the show. And without further ado, here's the interview with Anthony Fiola. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So... Last week, the United States and a whole bunch of countries decided that a 35-year-old industrial engineer named Juan Wido should be recognized as president of Venezuela and not Nicolas Maduro, who was elected in 2013 in an election that was pretty universally seen as fraudulent. You know, democracy at its best there. Anthony, can you give us like the quick and dirty version of, of what got us to this point where all of these countries are coming out in support of Guaido and not Maduro, who was notionally elected to be president?
2: Sure. I mean, Guaido didn't quite come out of nowhere, but almost. You know, as you mentioned, he's an industrial engineer turned politician, and he's been mentored for years by Leopoldo Lopez, who is a a very well-known opposition leader in Venezuela, who's been under house arrest, but has a fairly strong support base within the opposition. Guaido um, was named head of the National Assembly last month, and that, you know, essentially gave him the legal standing that he needed in order to start waging these arguments that they're waging now that Maduro is not only illegitimate, but guess what? You know, there's someone else who could stand in his place, and Guaido is the man. You know, he also was able to take the opposition that was divided and managed for ages and give them a figure to stand behind, which was an incredibly significant thing to do. But they also did something very smart. I mean, they played on their international support. They sought legal recognition. And, you know, Maduro, as you mentioned, held elections last year that were largely seen as a fraud. You know, and what they did is they used the fact that Maduro swore himself in on the 10th as evidence that he was now an usurper, and in fact, legally, he could no longer be recognized as you know, the legitimate head of state of Venezuela. And they invoked articles of the Constitution to say that Guaido was now that man. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the kind of legal cover that foreign governments needed in order to do what they've done, which is essentially switch their diplomatic recognition from Maduro to Guaido.
1: Right. I didn't realize he was a Leopoldo Lopez guy. That's interesting. I, actually, I went to the same college as Leopoldo Lopez. A bunch of my older brother's friends are friends with Leo. And so we've all been you know, watching that case for a long time. He was imprisoned for a while. I believe he's still under house arrest. It's been a pretty uh, dicey situation for him. So I'm glad to hear you know he's doing okay and that uh, someone who's his friend is actually leading the charge here.
2: Yeah, I spoke to his wife Lillian just the other day and, you know, she says that he's in good spirits. Obviously he's watching this very closely. You know, as I mentioned, you know, Guaido really came from his ilk and was mentored by Leopoldo. And I think that's one thing that has given him broader recognition and a broader support base within mm-hmm. the opposition, the fact that he can count on someone like Leopoldo as backing. Yeah. So The
1: Washington Post interviewed Guaido recently. What did you make with him? And what's his plan to push through this very challenging leadership change in Venezuela?
2: Yeah, I mean, he's going through this, you know, very systematically. I mean, it's basically a two-pronged strategy to oust Maduro. I mean, first, there's this really new element of foreign support, especially the Trump administration. Um, to cut off Maduro's sources of foreign income and make him pay a high price for what they're calling this usurpation of power, right? I mean, the U.S. is not the only one behind this. You know, the Trump administration, even before it started playing hardball, You had the Canadians, you had the Colombians, you had the Brazilians and other South American countries that were banding together and saying that they would not recognize Maduro. But obviously having the US on board for Guaidó is the real game changer, Mm -hmm. you know, in the sense that they can really put the hurt on him, right? I mean, yesterday they took major steps adopting these measures that effectively make it impossible for Venezuela to keep selling oil to the US. And since that's its largest and direct stream of dollars this is huge, I mean it, it, it really does hurt the government and helps the opposition. The other prong in Guaido's plan is to bring Venezuelans back out into the streets. I mean he managed last week to, to rally hundreds of thousands and the, you know basically we 're seeing a return to what we saw of the protests you know in two thousand and seven seventeen when we had four months of this, but that was severe repression and what we 're seeing now again is that Maduro appears to be rolling out an even harsher response than he did in 2017. So it's going to be incredibly interesting to see whether or not this cows the people into staying at home, you know, or whether or not this simply makes them angrier and and makes them turn out in larger numbers.
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that Maduro is playing hardball. I mean, people who cross him tend to end up arrested, detained, exiled, or otherwise pulled out of the political arena. Uh, This morning, the top prosecutor in Venezuela asked the Supreme Court to prohibit Guaido from leaving the country and to freeze his bank accounts. This comes just days after the U.S. put sanctions on their state-owned oil company. I mean, do you think this is the beginning of much harsher treatment for Guaido, who I think to date, had been treated surprisingly okay, or at least, you know, not harassed. I mean, he was
2: briefly detained, as you know, but for about an hour um, earlier this month, but nothing compared to the House of Rests, for instance, that Leopoldo has seen or, you know, the, the other ways in which, you know, opposition leaders have been exiled or jailed or tortured. I mean, you have not seen that. I think to date, the calculation by the Maduro administration has basically been that, you know, if they touch a hair on his head, it gives the international community more of a reason to launch a response, and particularly the U.S., Mm -hmm. which has been saber-rattling from Washington and, you know, insisting that no, you know, options are off the table. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're going to see now is an interesting and very delicate and perhaps more dangerous period, as we see, you know, Maduro has less and less to lose. You know, if the Americans have cut the oil supplies— the, um, the flow of oil cash. They've cut that off. Um, they've frozen accounts by the Venezuelan government, you know, in the United States. The Europeans are preparing to do the same. Maduro has tried to pull $1.2 billion worth of gold out of the Bank of England, and they're not letting him get at it. So, you know, he's got less and less to lose. And I think what we see here, perhaps, is, a, you know, a toe in the water of what happens when they start cracking down on Guaido. Um, I guess what we're going to have to see is what's next and exactly what the international response will be, you know, and whether the Trump administration is going to carry on with this threat to take this to a higher level and escalate.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned this a little bit. I mean, the Trump administration keeps saying that all options are on the table, which usually means military forces on the table. That formulation often gives a president flexibility. But in this case, there's some real concern that he means it. I mean, yesterday, a photo of John Bolton, the National Security Advisor's notebook, showed that he had written 5,000 troops to Colombia on the piece of paper. That's not very good operational security. What do you make of the feasibility of a U.S. military option in Venezuela? And and do you think that the rest of the coalition in, in the region that supported us so far or at least gone along with the US effort to force Maduro out would be cool with US boots on the ground?
2: You know, I think you have to remember that in Latin America, you know, the idea of US intervention is particularly thorny. Yes. You know, as you know, you know, there is there's lots of resentment in the region over past interventions and heavy handedness by the US. That said, you know, I think what we have seen is that a general understanding in the region that Venezuela is different. Um, The humanitarian crisis in Venezuela is horrific. You know, people are starving, disease is spreading, there is a lack of medication, there is, you know, hyperinflation that is crippling the country. It's almost a failed state. And so as a result of that, we've seen hundreds of thousands, even millions, of Venezuelans pouring over the border into countries like, you know, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina, And these countries are feeling overwhelmed. Now, they want the situation solved one way or another. And I think you may see them, you know, publicly, you know, perhaps still insist that military intervention is a horrible idea. But privately, I think you may see some of them thinking that, well, you know, look, this problem has got to be solved. How is it going to get solved? I think they want to see everything exhausted before anything like a military intervention takes place. I mean, I don't know that we're there yet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I think what you are seeing is perhaps behind the scenes, some toning down of the normal opposition that you would see towards some kind of, you know, military intervention in Latin America because of just how bad the humanitarian crisis is and the way in which it's impacting the countries in the region.
1: Wow. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the U.S. has a long and troubling history of facilitating coups or generally interfering in Latin American countries. And it does not often end well. Uh, Given that history, I've been surprised to read all these like TikTok news stories where Mike Pence and Marco Rubio seem to compete for credit for Guaido's announcement. (laughs) What is your sense of how people in Venezuela like are receiving this overt call from other countries to choose their new leader? Is this welcome?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on who you're talking to, right? I mean, the people who have been on the side of the opposition, have um, for some time felt disillusioned. And I think they felt disillusioned because not only were their leaders divided and not necessarily guiding them towards any real solution, but at the same time, I think they felt that the international support they were getting was fairly empty. So I think for those people, they're receiving this with, you know, some kind of a a deep sense of receptivity. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think they would like to see the international community become more involved and solve the problem that they're living every day. That said, you know, you can't underestimate the fact that there are still quite a lot of Venezuelans who believe in Chavismo, mm-hmm. which is this left-wing ideology that was created by Hugo Chavez and, you know, who anointed Maduro as his successor in 2013 before he, he died of cancer, right? So you have a, a huge segment of the country that still firmly believes in this. Now, those people are very likely outraged by the idea that, you know, their country is being interfered with by foreign powers. And they may not look sympathetically on someone like Guaido for being in allegiance with them. But, you know, I think that portion of the population, as the humanitarian crisis has gotten worse and worse in Venezuela, has probably diminished. It's hard to tell just how large that block is. But it's certainly still there. But I think you'd also have to say that, the people who may be a little bit more receptive to this kind of, you know, stronger international agitation is growing in Venezuela.
1: Yeah. Anthony, thank you so much for helping me better understand what's going on down there. I hope this resolves without any military intervention or, um, you know, violence, because, boy, it feels dicey.
2: Yeah, for sure. Thank you very much for having
1: me. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the U.N. Refugee Agency. The U.N. Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways— by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation.
0: Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began, or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know, take a nap, read a book. I wouldn't do a book. Listen, I wish I would pick book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, dot crookedworld. So Ben... Everybody just heard the conversation with Anthony Fiola, in the Washington Post, walking us through what the hell's going on in, yeah. in, in Venezuela itself. I wanted to talk to you about the Washington component of this. Yeah diplomatic effort because you know the trump team has been running a pretty intense diplomatic play to push maduro out of power in venezuela i've been impressed by the way they have coordinated with regional allies trump's recognition of guaido was closely followed by a bunch of countries in the region oas which is an international organization uh european allies so like that kind of diplomatic unity has been missing in almost everything else they've done candidly Similarly, they've cracked down hard on Maduro with sanctions, including sanctions against Venezuela's state-owned oil company. That happened on Monday. That said, it does feel like we are diving into a coup without yeah. any discussions of the implications or how it might be received given the sort of fraught history the U.S. has in yeah. Latin America. So I, I guess, like, I'm struggling with this. Uh, Maduro is a fucking monster who is yeah. starving his own people. He's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. Like, he's mismanaged the country. He's corrupt. He's awful. But we are not very good at the regime change business. So yeah. I'm torn here. Well, like, how are you feeling?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same place. I'd start by saying that, first of all, there's no question that Venezuela would be much better off if Maduro was not in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, is not, he has zero democratic legitimacy. He's eviscerated democratic institutions in the country. You know, I met him once, uh, you know, Obama and I met him backstage at a summit. Oh, really? We had to do it away from the cameras so yeah, that, yeah. like, you know, we didn't want to be seen with the guy.
1: Right, because you get beaten up on Fox News for six months. Yeah, but, yeah.
3: you know, we wanted to kind of say, like, hey, man, this is before things were completely off the rails, and, and you know, we obviously were mm-hmm. saying, you're taking this the wrong direction. He, <laughs> he was kind of incoherent. He just kind of yeah. went on about how he was a
1: revolutionary and... And, you know, I, Dan I, Restrepo's take was just he, he had to deal with them all the time. Dan Restrepo, yeah. who ran Western Hemisphere Latin American Affairs for us at the White House, was just like, the guy's just not smart. He has no, none he's, of the Chavez he, charisma. That's
3: right. And I also saw him in Cuba speak to a very large crowd and, like, talk about a home game, right? <laughs> yeah. And he couldn't even fire up that crowd. Like, so he, he, Chavez had a charisma and a hold on the country. Maduro has all the, you know, corruption and cult of personality of Chavez with none of the charisma. And he's completely mismanaged and destroyed the economy through corruption. He's repressed the opposition. He's cheated in the election. So he has no legitimacy. That's the starting point. I also, like you, think that you know this was an unusually well-coordinated play that they did, uh, getting you know, a host of other countries in Latin America to come along with them in the de-recognition of Maduro and the recognition of Guaido. I have a couple of concerns with it, though. One is the decision to recognize an alternative president. That makes for a very good story, a very good kind of bold seeming move. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of your last diplomatic bullet to fire, you yeah. know? And the reality is the military still backs Maduro, so you recognize someone who's really not.
1: In charge of the country. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the the challenge that Obama had in this exact scenario in Syria I, yeah, by recognizing the Syrian opposition. I put opposition.
3: this on our on our. We have bad experience with this, right? Because we recognize Syrian opposition, they get their hopes up, and Assad digs in, and nothing changes, and then you look feckless because you can't, you know, execute regime change. And so I think there's a a bit of a worry that you know this was a play that might serve to kind of galvanize Maduro's backers. And you already saw Russia and China kind of come to his defense, and the military come to his defense, and leave open the question of, okay, you've recognized this other guy, you know, what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Because if the Venezuelan military doesn't flip, then the situation is going to further deteriorate. And the risk then becomes... Well, you know, do we invade Venezuela? John yeah. Bolton's got his five thousand troops in Colombia that he saw. We saw oh, written yeah. on uh, his. I uh, want to ask you about that. Yeah, legal minute. pad. We'll come back <laughs> to that. So I guess this is such a tough issue because I, I support what the Trump administration wants to have happen, which is Maduro leave power and a, a restoration of semblance of democracy in Venezuela. I just worry that they are kind of driving the car eighty miles an hour without kind of a clear plan for where this is headed, and a lot of fraught history in Latin America, and a lot of ways that this could just kind of continue to get worse.
1: Yeah. I also kind of worry about the people who are in the room, because obviously Marco Rubio is running to the New York Times to tell them that he's driving this decision. But then- you know The decision to ultimately uh, tell Guaido that they were going to recognize him and de-recognize Maduro was reportedly – Josh Rogan from The Washington Post reported that it was on January 22nd. John Bolton convened what has come to be called a, quote, small group National Security Council meeting, which is the restricted yeah. meeting they do to lock yeah, out a bunch of other people. people yeah. So listen to who was there. Okay. <laughs> Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, sure, of course. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. sanctions are important, makes sense to have him be there. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, like they woke that guy up for the yeah. meeting, why? Larry Kudlow, what the fuck? The Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, sure, a Pentagon official, like it's, there's no technocrats. There doesn't, I didn't hear a bunch of intel people. Like it doesn't sound like the right room to make a smart decision where you're thinking through all the options.
3: Yeah, I mean, there there are a few problems with this. One is they have no credibility on democracy, right? So, Mike Pompeo had just probably returned from a flight where he was giving a foot rub to Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, look, the U.S. always is a bit hypocritical in the application of its values, but you know, this administration makes no pretense of caring about democracy anywhere in the world except in Venezuela and Cuba, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where they have a domestic political interest in doing so, right? They are trying to appeal to certain kind of more conservative hardline elements in Florida who support changes in government in, in Cuba and Venezuela. And that makes it harder, you know, it undercuts your credibility internationally, it undercuts your credibility inside of Venezuela if it just kind of looks like, you know, you're you're taking this shot at at Maduro because, you know, you have some domestic interest in doing so. That's the first problem. The second problem is that group suggests to me that, you know, this is entirely like a sanctions policy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason that Larry Kudlow is there, I guess, is that they're going to try to throw the book at the Venezuelans in terms of sanctions. But that may work in pressuring Maduro a lot, but I worry that they're not thinking through the secondary effects of that, Right. If you completely collapse the Venezuelan economy, you have potentially millions more people flowing out of the country, Mm -hmm. going into Colombia, people, frankly, coming to the United States where they're not giving any protected status to Venezuelans fleeing repression. And even if somehow you might succeed in kind of collapsing the country, there are not a lot of people in that room who know anything about Venezuela or, yeah. or, or what comes next, right? I yeah. mean, let's say they're even successful somehow and just kind of just collapsing the place and Guaido saying he's president and maybe some military goes with him and some others. Well, then you have this kind of failed state and what is th- who are the smart people who are going to help put it back together, right? So th- again, this is the problem with this policy in general is that they're just trying through brute force to dislodge Maduro. In doing so, they're going to further destroy the economy of the country and without probably giving a lot of thought to what comes after that and what happens if there's kind of a civil war situation, what happens if, you know, there's just a massive humanitarian crisis, uh, even bigger than today in the middle of South America. And so it doesn't give you a lot of, of faith that they're thinking two or three or four uh, moves down the board, as some of Trump's supporters say that that they're playing chess instead uh-huh. of checkers. Yes,
1: know. yes. Speaking of chess, so Trump keeps saying that all options are on the table when it yeah. comes to Venezuela, which is usually code for saying the military option is on the table. It's yeah. offer just it's just often just posturing in a, in a way to you know sort of increase the pressure on the other party. But yeah. on Monday, National Security Advisor John Bolton was spotted with a notepad that said. 5,000 troops to <laughs> yeah, Colombia. Yeah. So, first of all, uh, get a cover sheet, <laughs> yeah. you moron. Like, I guarantee you yeah. a troop movement of that size that hasn't occurred yet is classified. Yeah. So, that is disclosing classified information. Great job. But what the hell, like, what are you going to do with 5,000 troops in Colombia to impact the situation? Yeah. Who among
3: us hasn't doodled in a meeting, you know, <laughs> fantasies, 5,000 troops to some South American country? I don't think <laughs> there's a viable military <laughs> option. Yeah. Um, You know, if the template is like Panama and Grenada, these tiny countries that we invaded in the past, Venezuela is a big country. The Venezuelans have external support from not just Cuba, but uh, the Russians just deployed some like mercenary brigade to help protect Maduro. That'll be good. And so you're talking about potentially putting thousands of American troops into... A very large country that has very high levels of violence and insecurity already, in a region that has a deep resentment of the history of U.S. military interventions, which have really broken some of those places, and not led to good outcomes. Yeah, um, rightly so. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's it,
1: fair for them to question our our motivations here.
3: Yeah. So not only do I think there's not a viable option, but even if we were to somehow create one by you know, staging all the troops in Colombia. What does that look like to invade Venezuela? By the way, what is the legal basis for that domestically mm. or nationally? Good uh, question. That we can just pick a country in South America and invade it? Can we get UN support for that? Absolutely not with the Russians and Chinese. Will Congress authorize an invasion of Venezuela? I don't think so, right? So uh, it may seem like an inconvenience, but uh, you know, usually you, when you start a war, you want to have some legal basis mm-hmm. for it. And so, again, it's a sign that they seem to be kind of flying without a net here, just trying to throw stuff at Maduro to dislodge him. Again, I want him gone. Like, we should all be very clear. Like, this would be good. I do think there's a, a different way to go about yeah. this, which is to be tightening the noose, to be tightening sanctions, but to be very intensively trying to negotiate with the different factions inside of Venezuela. Frankly, talking to the Chinese and other countries about um, how to create some soft landing to a transitional government that can then hold an election. Mm -hmm. That was clearly the preference of the Europeans who are a bit slower and kind of following our lead. And they put the onus on, no, let's negotiate to hold a new election, right? Like a week, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's a better course to say, let's get everybody at the table here to try to find some common ground where there's some transitional government that can then hold a new election so that you have the democratic legitimacy of an election to choose a new leader. Because frankly, I don't know that it's good for Guaido to come into office unelected but kind of selected by Mike Pence. Don Trump Donald Trump, (laughs) you know, yeah. I mean so I think that there are ways other than an invasion to be trying to manage this. And, and not just because those are, are simpler, but because those are more likely to result in more stable outcomes, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a question of getting Maduro out. It's, it's what does the country look like after that? And how broken is the country in that process? And, and, and what is your capacity uh, to bring together enough of the different actors in Venezuela so that it's easier to rebuild the country? And I think that is more easily done through a negotiated settlement than it is through some kind of U.S., invasion or U.S. kind of sponsored coup in the country. And so again, I think I'd be very happy to wake up one day and learn that Maduro is gone. Uh, I think these guys are, are, again, going about it with all the, you know, aggression and, and not a lot of the thought. Yeah.
1: Well, so I think you kind of half answered my last question. It was just, you know, if you were sitting in a situation room, like, what would you tell the president to do, and and maybe more importantly, what do you think Democrats today, right now, should be saying about the Trump administration policy? Because you know, yeah, you, you see that like Dick Durbin and some and some yeah. very thoughtful members of Congress and senators are are torn. Yeah. You know?
3: Well, people like Durbin, Tommy, your friend and former Kenyan uh, fellow alum, Leopoldo Lopez, yeah. incredibly courageous guy. Durbin has for many years championed him.
1: Leopoldo Lopez is a freedom fighter in, in Venezuela yes. who was in prison for a long time and came out and then uh, you know went back in. Uh, now, I think believe he's on house arrest. There's actually yeah. a fantastic episode of The Daily yeah. where they talk with him about his story and what he's been through. Let's check it out.
3: Yeah. So I think it's a tough situation for Democrats because on the one hand, you know, there's this reflexive distrust of Trump, yeah, which can lead you to say, "Well, he's for this, so I must be against it, right?" And then there are these people like Durbin are thinking, like, "Well, look, I support the Venezuelan opposition, so I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to come in behind this." I think there's a, a another way of doing this. It's like a lot of things we've talked about, Tommy, where I can find some sympathy with the objective that Trump has, but I also have a lot of concerns about how he's doing it. I think Democrats can say, "Look, we're for a transition in Venezuela. We don't think Maduro is a legitimate leader." But what is a a comprehensive approach to this look like? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, number one, we should be doing more to support the Venezuelan people. So we should be giving TPS, temporary protected status, for Venezuelans who are here in the United States fleeing that violence. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the reasons why the Trump administration is so embarrassed to take that step is. it kind of validates the concept of asylum, of people having legitimate reason to come here to flee violence, right? But if you really care about the Venezuelan people, you would be offering the protection of coming to the United States if they're fleeing violence and repression there, right? Second, you could also provide a lot more support to these countries like Colombia that are hosting, you know, like a million Venezuelan refugees. So one piece is Democrats can express uh, through policy approaches, more support for the Venezuelan people. I think secondly, we can critique where we feel like there's danger in Trump's approach, certainly a military option. And again, I would also express a preference for a more negotiated approach to a transition rather than just kind of declaring the opposition the president and and trying to muscle Maduro out. Um, So I think there is a more nuanced way of doing this. Now it's hard if you're in Congress. That's kind of what you'd be doing if you were in, in the White House. I think third, though, Trying to plan for what is the Venezuela we would like to see after this transition because again, part of what I worry about with Trump is you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and look, maybe you do dislodge Maduro, but you've completely destroyed the the place in the process and you probably aren't giving thought to how you build it back up. What is a package of humanitarian and reconstruction assistance look like that is internationalized that is ready. They can frankly also serve as an incentive, a carrot, to say, mm-hmm. look, if you guys make this transition, the international community and the World Bank and the IMF and these other countries will come in and help put this place in a stable footing uh, with a, a kind of package of assistance so that you're, you're not just thinking about how to bring one man down, you're thinking about how to build back up the mm-hmm. country. Those are all the, the pieces I'd like to see. And I do think Democrats should be unabashed in calling out Trump's hypocrisy, you know, you should be for the the freedom and democracy for the Venezuelan people, and frankly, we should be for those values in lots of places, including places like Saudi Arabia, where these guys have totally sold out our values, yeah. right? Including in dealing with people like Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, Trump is going to go, you know, give a bear hug to Kim Jong Un next month, a man who's much more brutal than even a Maduro, right? So, I, I think Democrats should also in, engage this fight and not just kind of. Offer the Republicans the rhetoric of freedom on Venezuela when they've clearly shown that they don't believe those values mm-hmm. are for everybody. They just believe that those values are for places where they have some domestic political constituency.
1: Yeah. Trump's worried about caravans coming north. Boy, yeah. wait till there's a failed a state in well, Venezuela. Well, that's why these
3: I oil mean. sanctions are tricky. You yeah, know, I seriously. D- cutting off Venezuelan oil like is going to cause a, a humanitarian disaster, yeah, right? And dollars. that's always a difficult thing with with sanctions policy. When are you hurting the people? more than the leaders. There's a way to target the leaders more directly. Yeah. The last thing I'd say, Tommy, is that I, Elliot Abrams is announced as the envoy. Like, Elliot Abrams? Like, really? This is a guy, And apart from kind of being one of the architects of the Iraq War, uh, which worked out great and
1: promoted democracy. A well-planned invasion followed by a well-planned uh, reconstruction effort. Yeah, right? it's exactly it's what we Exactly need
3: what we need here. But also the guy was an architect of Iran, Contra, and a policy that supported Contras and death squads in Central America. So like yeah, the worst this, the worst. this tricky history of American intervention in Latin America is this guy, this right? Guy. <laughs> and so this is the guy that we're, we're bringing in. It doesn't, doesn't offer you a lot of hope that they've learned from the, the history here. And again, I should say like we should be very mindful that even if they somehow get Maduro out, which is by no means a guarantee— that's not the end of the story. It's like, are these guys equipped to help stabilize this place and move it forward?
0: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the Leather Collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new Leather Collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at four ninety nine ninety nine dollars 99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your chef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
1: Let's talk about some other worldwide threats. So every year, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee holds an unclassified annual threat assessment hearing where they detail you know, intel assessments on various issues around the globe. The intel community hates this hearing because they make this highly classified version of the report that goes to lawmakers yeah. and nerds like us who, who love to read them. And then they have to sand it down and present it and, and be held accountable. And so it's a good thing for democracy, but they hate it. We're recording this episode on Tuesday. So the hearing is happening right now. Here are a few highlights yeah, yeah, for yeah. you from this morning. Most of the presentations are by the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats. So on North Korea, Remember, these are Trump administration officials, his top intel guy, quote, we currently assess North Korea will seek to retain this WMD capability and is unlikely to completely give up its nuclear weapons and production capability. Quick reminder that Trump said there was no longer a threat yep. from North
3: Korea. Yeah, you dealt with that
1: one. Coates uh, said of, on Iran, we do not believe Iran is currently undertaking the key activities we judge necessary to produce a nuclear device. So good news. But Trump pulled out of the Iran deal. Coates yeah. uh, said ISIS still commands thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria and maintain eight branches and a dozen networks around the world. Again, Trump has repeatedly declared that ISIS is defeated. Finally, they said that climate change is now a global and U.S. national security Hmm. risk because of irreversible damage. So, Ben, it used to be a scandal when the president's words didn't match up with intelligence community assessments. Now, this manipulation of intelligence like that literally got us into the Iraq war is standard. What do you do when the delta between the president's words and his top intel guy's words is this great? Well, I mean, do you remember when this
3: hearing would happen and for you, and more than anybody in the uh, White House, it sucked, right? Sucked. Because your biggest fear, right, was that, like, the intel community would contradict something Some that we said. And, but I say that to make the point that it was good mm-hmm. that we were worried about that. We used to care. Because we cared and we'd be like, shit, you know, like and, and we didn't try to, you know, downplay the intel community. We'd have to say, okay, we, we don't have to adjust what yeah, we, we adapt said. To them, right? Right? We'd have to adapt to them. And look, Trump has made clear he doesn't Give a shit what the intelligence community says. I mean, in Helsinki, he sided with Putin Mm -hmm. against the intelligence community. He's called them the deep state. So, what's really awkward about watching this is knowing that they just don't care that these people have completely different assessments. And it is a very useful exercise, though, for the American people, and I think instructive for the Democratic House. To basically be using the intelligence community to fact check mm-hmm. the administration, like you say you dealt with the North Korean threat, well, actually you didn't. You say you defeated ISIS, well, actually you didn't. You say there's no climate change because it's cold in the Midwest, well, actually it's a major <laughs> national <laughs> security danger, right? And But I do think it shows the danger of an administration that makes policies that aren't informed by facts and evidence and analysis, right? I mean, the Iran deal is a clear case of that, like... They're still complying with this agreement. Amazing. Like, we pulled out, like, You're almost a right year thing. ago, and, and they're actually still tr- complying, right? And, like, Trump still says all the time that they're not. Like, it it does it also shows to reporters, by the way, that you don't have to say, well, Trump says that they're not complying, but, you know, Iran mm-hmm. says, no, like, actually, th- there are factual bases for evaluating this. I'll say the one thing I was disappointed by is that Gina Haspel, the director of the CIA, wouldn't discuss at all, like, their Khashoggi really uh, judgments, you know, in an yeah. open session, it's like, come on, guys, like, why can't you, you let the American people know what you think happened here? There are ways of doing that without revealing sources and methods. But again, to me, it just it, it highlights that Trump is kind of operating separate and apart from the vast multi hundred billion dollar apparatus of his own government. And the danger of that is that that means he's making decisions that are entirely divorced from facts.
1: Yeah. It's one of those moments where it's just, it's so stark, Yeah, the degree to which he lies every day about these major national security priorities. And there's just, we've not figured out a way to hold him accountable yet. Hopefully the the Speaker of the House will continue to find ways to do that. I mean, she's doing it so far.
3: Yeah, well, and the North Korea one's a really important example because, you know, most Americans don't know... I mean, that much about North right. Korea, right. right? And I don't say that to be condescending at all, like who's kind of able to keep up with huh, you know the intricacies of the North Korean program. So, you know, when Trump goes out and says he's dealt with a threat and everybody just saw a picture of him smiling and shaking hands with the North Korean leader, they may think, a lot of people think, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that they haven't, you know, as we've discussed here, haven't given up their nuclear weapons at all. Yeah,
1: not at all. I did not want to talk about Afghanistan this week, but there's potentially huge news yeah. that I think we just have to cover. According to Zalmay Khalilzad, who is the U.S. negotiator with the Taliban, the U.S. and the Taliban have agreed in principle to a deal where the Taliban would guarantee Afghan territory is never used by terrorist organizations, which in turn could lead to a full pullout of U.S. troops, which could then lead to additional concessions like a ceasefire from the Taliban and agreeing to negotiate directly with the Afghan government. That is, the Taliban agreeing to negotiate with the Afghan government, which they previously refused to do. Obviously, these are, are delicate talks, these things you know, fall apart all the time, but it would be a huge step forward. And and when you really step back and think about it, I mean, our national security interests in Afghanistan is preventing uh, Al Qaeda from plotting another 9-11. So the letter of this deal would specifically prevent that. I, I don't know how you would enforce yeah. this promise to not let foreign yeah. terrorist organizations come into the country. It's not like they control every swath of territory. So they need to figure that out. But I think we should also be honest that this outcome would be horrific for a lot of people who would live in Afghanistan under Taliban rule, especially women. So I guess just the question, is this the best deal that's ever going to be on the table as Trump announces we're going from 14,000 to 7,000 troops?
3: Yes. And I think it is a deeply unsatisfying and limited deal, but the best one that you're going to get. I mean... Look, I think we should have be out of Afghanistan already, and I say that not just commenting on Trump's policies, but I you know I, I would have liked to see us because this pledge has actually been the reality for years. Yeah. The Taliban does not sponsor attacks outside of Afghanistan. They just don't. They fight in Afghanistan. They have not really been inactive cahoots with al-Qaeda in some time. You know, al Qaeda's is kind of driven to Pakistan. You know, they, they have marriages of convenience, but it's not like back in the day when they're kind of providing protection for these al-Qaeda safe havens. Mm-hmm. So in reality, the Taliban commitment kind of validates what is already the reality, which is the Taliban doesn't care about attacks outside of Afghanistan. They just, they care about Afghanistan, right? I think the other thing that is tricky about this is that we, when we were in government, and you'll remember this, always tried to insist on a negotiated peace where the Afghans were negotiating with the Taliban, the mm-hmm. Afghan government. And it has been kind of interesting to watch this kind of be a Taliban-U.S. Know, discussion, like indeed. the Afghans kind of cut out of it, which kind of indicates the degree to which the Taliban are going to be power players going forward. All of that said, I think this is a good outcome. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's you need to create some framework- to wind this war down my hope is that things like the commitment to a ceasefire become real so that there is some kind of space for a return to less violence in Afghanistan i don't think anybody should have any illusions though you know the Af- the taliban will be very influential in the parts of of afghanistan that it Already controls the Afghan government will need continued support from us just to try to stay where they are and to control Kabul, Kabul, right? And so it's gonna be, you know, a messy situation. But again, as we, I don't think that keeping US troops there has prevented that from happening. In fact, that's all happened while the US has been there. And so you need some diplomatic framework to begin to extricate us from Afghanistan, and then hopefully and importantly, to get the Taliban and the Afghan government talking to each other. And so that's the next big step that was alluded to that needs to take place here.
1: You know, this is an odd comment, but because I agree with you, this is a imperfect solution, to say the least. But I do think our troops need to get out. And it was one of the first times during the Trump administration where I thought, maybe this is the one silver lining to having a Republican president. Because Trump can cut this deal and not have Lindsey Graham light himself on fire in front of the White House and Fox News attack. I mean, President Hillary Clinton would never be able to cut this deal, which frankly, probably reflects the best case scenario in Afghanistan. You get yeah. just pressure to continue fighting.
3: And, okay, this will be the one time I do this on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if Obama had I mean, come I'd out with this out. kind on. of deal, I can't even imagine what would be happening. Like, the White House would be invaded by a mixture <laughs> of, like, Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton and, and Marco <laughs> Rubio, and these guys are, like, fucking silent, you yeah, know, yeah. on this stuff, right? But you're right. I mean, and look, the, the unsatisfying thing about all of these post-9-11 wars, right, is where there's a lot but you know one of them is like it was very apparent very early on that there was never going to be some surrender ceremony on the uss missouri like at the end of world war ii here like and then it, it got even more apparent that like we weren't even really we certainly weren't going to win in any traditional definition of the word win there's going to be these unsatisfying murky outcomes right
1: we were never able to hold territory then transfer it to afghan authorities yeah. that part fell down
3: and what we tried to to do in the Obama administration is say, look, the goal was to defeat Al Qaeda, and on that, you know, we've we've scored some wins. You know, we, it may not be com- all done, but we took out Bin Laden, we took out the leadership. I don't know when the goal became like remaking Afghanistan, remaking Iraq. Like the it was the Bush administration that moved the goalpost and defined objectives that were completely unwinnable, mm-hmm. and this is the problem that I have with the blob as we, you know, the farm uh, is like you end up taking on these maximalist objectives. Like if we don't have a, a democratic Afghanistan that is providing security and controls mm-hmm. the whole country, we have to stay there forever. And the same is true in Iraq and the same is true everywhere. Right. And this is what the real world looks like. You know, sometimes you have to say like, this is the most we can get done here, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and I think this represents that.
1: Um, one other scary thing before a fun thing. So, there's been a, uh, a serious outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The latest number is 733 confirmed and probable cases, 459 deaths. More scary, a bunch of the teams that get sent to, like, manage these outbreaks, track them, clean shit up, are meeting getting met with aggression uh, and potential violence, which mm-hmm. can compound the problem because yeah. you can't, you know, help people. So you were at the White House in 2014 when yeah. there was, like, a very scary Ebola outbreak in West Africa, spiraled out of control. Donald Trump weighed in because yeah. he ruins everything. Can you just remind us what that was like and what it took to control an epidemic or an outbreak like this? Well, West
3: Africa was in some ways more problematic because it's more connected to the rest of the world. So there are more people coming and going from West Africa than from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you had a situation where at peak, there were estimates that there could be tens of millions of people who would contract this. And it would basically destroy these three West African countries and potentially spread to many other places. In order to get that out of Uh, Under control. Obama did something totally unprecedented. We deployed the US military. So we sent almost 3,000 troops to set up essentially a staging area in West Africa that would serve as the hub for health workers from all around the world coming in and Mm -hmm. building treatment centers and getting this epidemic under control. And ultimately, we were able to dramatically drive down the number. I mean, I think the number of deaths, still obviously horrific and tragic, ended up being somewhere in the range of 20,000. Again, there were estimates that this could have been in like the many, many millions. And it, it took that level of, of foreign intervention. It was almost like treating it like a war, like we're sending troops and we're building infrastructure, and the rest of the world is pitching in healthcare workers. And And frankly, we had to be back the fear-mongering from people like Trump and Chris Christie, who remember wanted to kind of quarantine healthcare workers and shut down the airports and and shut down the airports. And and basically you need healthcare workers to go do that, to stamp out this disease. And they were disincentivizing anybody from doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. It it was highly irresponsible. I think in the DRC, you're helped a bit uh, by the remote and isolated nature of the place, that there's not as much of a capacity for it to spread However, it could, and it will require a degree of competence that this administration hasn't demonstrated because the Ebola response, we needed to have the US military involved, US aid agencies that could provide healthcare workers, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health working on treatments and, and vaccines. So, a very complicated yeah. arrangement of, of federal agencies. Frankly, you need good government. <laughs> And good process. And those are two things that this administration doesn't have. And so I've always worried about what would happen if something like an epidemic took root because they're just not equipped to deal
1: with it. Yeah. Scary. Okay. That was dark. So let's talk to about Jared Kushner for a second to yeah. let off a little steam. NBC reported that Jared Kushner's application for a top secret security clearance was rejected by two career White House security specialists, but later overruled by a former Pentagon employee who was installed by the Trump administration in 2017. There have been stories swirling about Jared's security clearance, but this is the most detailed we've gotten. This guy who they installed to oversee the, the process apparently overruled like the experts in 30 cases and gave people top secret clearances where they had problematic backgrounds. So then on top of that, Jared went to the CIA to get uh, a clearance to see sensitive compartmented information or or your SCI clearance, which is higher level, more secret stuff. And the CIA reportedly said no. And they even called over to the White House to say, how the hell did this guy get a top secret clearance given all the problems he has? So NBC says he doesn't have an SCI clearance still. That is shocking to me because he's been in the PDB and supposedly managing Middle East peace and the Saudi account and all these other things. But, like, Ben, a security specialist overruling career professionals in 30 cases to give someone unqualified for a clearance a top-secret clearance seems to me to be a massive, massive scandal. I'm glad that the Oversight Committee, the House Oversight Committee, is going to investigate it. But, I mean, I just... The potential damage that could yeah. have been done is massive.
3: Yes, so they should focus on this. It makes a mockery of the process. You know, let's be also very clear: we don't know the precise reasons why this particular clearance for Jared was denied. We can speculate, however, yeah,
1: a lot of that
3: it's the potential that you know he was compromised, that foreign governments had the goods on him because of corruption or because of what he'd done with Russia, you know, during the campaign or transition, right? The most important reason that you would deny a clearance to somebody is so that they don't have sensitive information and can't be blackmailed by a foreign government, right? That is the number one reason why you would not want somebody to have a clearance. And everything we know about Jared and the group of grifters and malcontents uh, that probably make up those 30 people suggests that they were very valid. You know, this wasn't like... You know, drug use, which, which I'll get to in a second. Right. Um, um, I think you got to th- it earlier, th- but okay. this, was like, this was something that really matters, right? And so it shows like a complete and utter disregard for the rules and the standards and, and also a, a casual approach to our national security because if the professionals are saying, hey, these are national security risks if you give these people clearance because they're susceptible to blackmail," and there's some guy saying, well, no, 30 of these people the president says to get the clearance to get the clearance, you know, that's really fucking dangerous. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, you alluded to it, but right. I mean, the only people I can remember getting grief about their clearances were people who had like smoked pot more previously than five or seven years, which was seen as the available, you know, the, the acceptable window uh, before you were clean to get a clearance, yeah. which is dumb our our. So let's
3: be very clear. Like, that was me. Um, oh, yeah. so, 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 so I'm <laughs> going to tell the story. I'm going to tell the story in part because I remember the right wing had this theory for a while. They found out that I got initially denied a clearance, right? And then they said that they thought it was because I was an Iranian agent. Yeah, right? of course. But here's the, here's the real story. Cause it's kind of a funny story. So bear with me. But you, the night before the election, Cassandra Butts. So I'd been submitted for an interim security clearance, right? Mm-hmm. So during the transition, so I got out a clearance. The night before the election, Cassandra Butts, God rest her soul, wonderful, lovely woman who died uh, tragically of an illness while Tom Cotton was holding her up for an ambassadorship for two years. She calls me because she was running the transition. She says, hey, uh, you (laughs) denied your interim clearance. And I'm like, what the fuck? And she's like, because of like the recent nature of your marijuana use. Right. And so I was fucking terrified that uh, I wouldn't be able to come and serve in government. Because I actually would have abided by the rules. If somebody said, you're denied a clearance, I would have thought, well, then I can't work at the NSC, right? What happened, though, was not like Donald Trump came in and snapped his fingers or Barack Obama. She said, no, look, what they do now is they go and they investigate you. And they, you know, go talk to a lot of people and they check out basically whether you're some like – rampant needle in the arm drug user, or whether, you know, this could be kind of explained away as like, okay, this is another person who's done marijuana. And they did that investigation over the next few months. And I ended up getting a full clearance and SEI by the government and by the people who do this, right? So they went by the book and they determined like, this is actually not a threat. This guy is not a drug addict and is not like at risk of being blackmailed by foreign governments who know that this guy wants you know, smug pot, right? That's how you do it by the book, right? And then I ended up getting SCI and all the other clearances. These guys clearly just, they didn't like the answer they got. They just said, well, we'll just overrule you, right? Yeah. And again, overrule you on far more sensitive shit than whether Jared like took a hit like a, or yeah. had an edible a few years ago, right? right. And the, the last thing I would say about this is I guarantee you, that there are, they're still breaking these rules. If Jared is sitting in the PDB, you discuss SEI information in the PDB every single day. You discuss covert operations in there. Like, there, there's no way that that guy is not sitting in rooms today that he should not be in, mm-hmm. right? So, not only did they break the rules in giving and the top secret clearance, I'm sure that like if he's doing all the things that they say he's doing, you know, Middle East peace, society relationship, going to the PDB, then they're just flaunting the rules again, and it, it adds to this again. Not just perception. This reality that they think there are two sets of rules, like yeah. one that applies to everybody and and one applies to them.
1: You're not supposed to get the job if you can't get the clearance, Jared. You got matter. the clearance. Yeah, you
3: t- must be a cleaner whistle than me, Tom. Well, about. I mean, it, it took it took a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they must have done that investigation. <laughs> I remember yeah. filling out the form
1: yeah. too, and it was not a very fun process.
3: I should add, just for the the concern of people who worry about drug use, if you're in that list, they drug test the shit out of you by oh, the right, government. Me too, yeah. I mean, I would get the random calls. Yeah. Um, with a high degree of frequency. Yes, yeah.
1: yes, yes. Lots of peeing in cups in the EOB. Um, I peed in a lot of cups in the EOB. <laughs> Last question for you. Uh, Sorry about that. You flagged this story for me. It, it, was, it was a headline in the New York Times called The Bumbling Spy. And, and there's this group called the Citizen Lab, which is a cybersecurity watchdog organization up at Toronto at a university there. So they've done some really impressive work for you know, exposing intelligence agencies that are part of government censorship or surveillance of dissidents, including the fact that there's a Israeli software was used to spy on Jamal Khashoggi's friends before his murder. And and his friends think that Khashoggi's like true feelings about the Saudis were in messages that were hacked. And so they saw like his blunt opinion and that led to his death. So this
3: should have been a bigger scandal. No kidding. Dangerous shit.
1: So... Long story short, like Citizen Lab gets his outreach from this weird character who says he wants to invest, but they smell a rat. So they invite basically two AP reporters to come to this meeting at a New York hotel and sort of stake it out and watch this person as there's sort of a double spy game yeah, going on. So Every, it's an amazing
3: story. So it's an amazing story. but like, Everybody should read this story.
1: You've been a victim of, yeah, of this, these people. This, so they think the this guy people. is with Black Cube. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was spied on you. So yeah. I, I'm just curious, like, what your take on this piece was and, and, and how it made you feel knowing that these guys are still operating with impunity.
3: Yeah, so the the Black Cube, this group of former Israeli intelligence agents, you know, was hired to dig up dirt on on me and, and my family and, and call and call. And they reached out to my wife. And it was a similar thing, like, someone with, like, a shell company reached out to my wife because he said he's making a movie. She, she's smarter than me, so she didn't respond. But the same, this guy shows up, and he says he's you know, somebody who he's not, and he can't keep his story straight. I mean, it's almost comic to read the story. Like, he he said in the initial contact, he referenced having a son, and then in the meeting, he said he had a daughter. <laughs> you know, like, he <laughs> yeah. couldn't even, like, keep his fake identity <laughs> straight. My favorite right? part
1: was when they finally bust him, and he tries to storm out, and then he forgot to pay the bill. But, I mean,
3: it pisses me off that, like, who are these fucking clowns, like, operating— with this like kind of weird degree of impunity, careening around the world yeah, in, in the U.S. in the in the United States, like trying to do these intelligence setups. And again, what bothers me is, you know, if it's Black Cuban, and we know, you know, that they helped try to dig up dirt on Harvey Weinstein's accusers as well as as Obama people, and now they're going after people who just uncovered the truth, right? To intimidate them, I, I want to know what is the regulation around these people? Yeah. You know, like, what is the Israeli government doing? Uh, something suggests to me that you don't have a bunch of former Mossad people operating without the Israeli government knowing what they're up to, right? Mm-hmm. Or the U.S. government, for that matter. And and so I do think there needs to be a question. I, I don't think citizens and democracies are comfortable with the idea of people who've spent decades on the taxpayer dime learning how to be spies, then becoming these kind of, rogue agents. It's one thing to kind of be gather, you know, it's unsavory, but people might gather like on opposition research on people. Yeah, yeah. But it's a different thing. It's just a different nature of thing to kind of pretend to be somebody else and to to be launching these these entrapments and and these kind of spy operations. You know, I think it bears a little more sunlight and scrutiny.
1: Yeah, I mean to your point, right. I mean the political candidates do opposition research and, and will forever, but this guy was Making all these leading statements like, uh, doesn't Citizen Lab do its work because of, you know, hatred and racism against Israel? That's sort of that kind of leading question, which is, you know, not very good spy craft because the guy sniffed it out immediately. Yeah.
3: And also they don't. Right. And like this gets back to what we've discussed here a lot, which is like you can have concerns with the policies of the Israeli government and not. Part of the reason why it was so laughable is that these people aren't like these raging anti-Semites. Like they're just people who are trying to to understand what's happening in a certain Cyber realm. Just
1: nice know. nerds up in Canada. There's some.
3: Just, no, I, there's some nice guys up in, in the University of Toronto. Or something, <laughs> you know, like
1: yeah, leave me alone. Yeah, Ben, that's all I have for today. Yeah, that was good. We covered a lot of ground.
3: Yeah, sorry about my clearance story, but uh, you know, I figure I could set the record straight here. You know? uh,
1: there have been a lot of crazy people speculating about that clearance issue for a long time. So I'm glad. Yeah, we if you it up if here. you
3: go back and look at the resources devoted by the Free Beacon, and actually letters from like Republican congressmen, they were convinced or not they convinced themselves that i was planted by the iranian government in 2007 2008 to get into the obama white house to do the iran deal right so the degree of conspiracy theory was a little nuts when frankly it was far more easily explainable like yeah i had some pretty recent marijuana use yeah, it, give me a break.
1: thank you again to anthony fiola thank you ben talk to you guys next week great see you guys bye